Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. His name. Amen. Well, we are going to be um, jumping around a little bit today, but as we get in, um, we're going to actually be talking about suffering today. You guys excited about that? Yeah, I was watching a video last night, and there was this, you know, just dumb videos that you see on the internet, and this video came through, and uh, someone threw open these doors, and you saw like 30 ducks come rushing out the door into the snow, and they just called kind of all waddling out, and they're all excited, and they're all like, you know, fired up to be let loose, and they run out into the snow, and as soon as they're a little webbed feet start hitting that snow. You hear them start, start quacking and squawking and you see their wings start flapping and they start jumping up and down and they all turn around and run right back inside. And I, that's kind of how I feel when you talk about suffering. Like suffering, it's like, oh, no, I think I'm gonna go back. Like Jeff, I thought I was coming to church to talk about Christmas. I thought we were talking about lights and gifts and all kinds of fun stuff. Or, you know, why do we have to talk about suffering? The reality is sin and suffering are twin evils in our world that we all have to endure. None of us get to escape uh, those things. And, and something I, I've learned about suffering is we all remember our suffering. Like the, the times that you were at your lowest, the times where uh, something rocked you and jolted you, you remember those days. In fact, I can, uh, there's certain things in my life that people can ask me about. And if I, if I enter into it, I actually have to be really careful because someone can ask me about something, I can start telling a story and I know that I can go into that story so far and I can stay at the level of facts, but if I cross a certain line, I may derail the whole conversation because when I cross that line and enter into the emotion of it, I mean, I, it will just take over and I'll get, I'll get stuck there for a little while because suffering stays with us and we remember those things. And as I was, I did, honestly didn't plan to go here several weeks ago when I thought about kind of where we're heading. But honestly, over the last few weeks, I've just had so many conversations with people in our body and in our church who are just reeling from one thing or another. Uh, for either something in the past that's continuing to come to them, the isolation they're dealing with, the health crisis, some, uh, some e- emotional turmoil, just one thing after another after another. I just see people reeling and, and I just feel like, man, this is a timely message for us. So let me tell you where we're gonna go today. We're gonna start off, we're gonna go back to 2 Samuel, look at the end of David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 12. And so we're gonna do that. And we're gonna, we're gonna kind of zoom in on David and look at this, uh, this, this grief that he's experiencing. And then we're gonna take the drone and we're just gonna send it way up and we're gonna pan out and get kind of a bird's eye view of, every, uh, of, of the rest of the story. And we're gonna look at Matthew chapter one. And we're gonna look at what Christmas has to say about our suffering. So we're gonna start in 2 Samuel 12, then we'll end up in Matthew 1 and kind of get, we will get to Christmas, I assure you. Uh, read with me at 2 Samuel 12, and we're gonna start in verse, oh, where are we starting? Verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child of Uriah's wife. And let me, just for those of you that may not have been here the last few weeks, let me remind you of where we've been. Uh, David, the king of Israel, the, was, the, was the pinnacle of the nation of Israel, the high point, and, and really the, the, the primary king to which all the blessings and promises of God have been poured out. And God had promised him in 2 Samuel 7 that there'll be a king that follows in the line of David that will be on the throne forever. And yet David is still this sinful man. Even though he's a man after God's own heart, it says, uh, he also gets himself wrapped around a pole and just wrecks his life 
with adultery, with murder with, of Bathsheba and her husband. And Bathsheba has gotten pregnant and she has come and sent word to David, I am pregnant. And so now David, this king has been shamed. He's got this, uh, this woman that he now has to take care of. He's got this child that's uh, apparently on the way. And here we pick up the story where the child has been born and we pick it up in verse 15. It says, and the Lord afflicted the child of Uriah's wife born to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and he lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not and he did not eat food with them. And on the seventh day, the child died and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead for they said, behold, while the child was even alive, we spoke to him, but he did not listen to us. How can we then say to him that the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went out into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. David said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I go back to him again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So tough story here in David's life. You see a really hopeless situation. David's committed adultery. He's committed murder. There's a consequence of that in the shame and the, the, the wreckage that's going to happen in his own house. But the immediate aftermath of that was a consequence of a child that was on the way. And here this child becomes sick. And David is wrecked by it all. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. He's laying on the ground. And even as his, his servants are trying to get him to rise up, he refuses to do so. Now, it's interesting here, David doesn't take the easy way out, does he? In some ways, this child will always be a reminder of David's sin, right? This child will forever be a reminder that you committed adultery, you committed murder, and this is the end But David, David begs the Lord to save this child. One, I think because every human life is of great value. Uh, but secondly, I think uh, the reason is because God is a God of mercy. And he thought maybe God will spare him. David was, he was, he was acting in faith. Now, it's interesting that his elders and his counselors are watching him, right? So as David's going through this grief experience, the people that are in his court, his court counselors are watching him, and they're confused by his actions, right? I mean, it says David's laying on the ground, he's weeping, he's begging, he's lamenting, he's asking the Lord, he's fasting, and they're like, David, get up. David, and they're trying to get him up, and David has to refuse and say no. They didn't understand David's faith when David was crying out and asking God to save this child. They didn't see what was happening in the midst of that moment. And then on the seventh day, the child dies and the servants are then afraid to tell David, what do they say? They're like, man, he was a wreck when the child was okay. How would we possibly tell him? But David's, David's perceptive and he understands that there's whispering going on in the hall, something's happened. And he inquires and says, has the child passed? And they said, yes, he has. Friends, we're, we're uncomfortable with grief, aren't we? We're uncomfortable with suffering. We're uncomfortable with knowing how do we respond in the moment when, life is, when, when a life has just been wrecked. And that's why these counselors, I, I think, are, they don't know what to do. When David's laying on the ground crying out, they're like, dude, can we help you up? 
And then as soon as David gets up, they go, why, you know, what are you doing now? Help me understand why, why are you eating after the child has died? And they're uncomfortable and unsure exactly how to enter into this. Now, what we see is these men are filled with fear and despair. What if, what if David doesn't bounce back? What if David does himself harm, they're asking? They're on suicide watch. What does David do whenever he hears that the child is dead, has died? You notice what it says? It says he arose, he washed, he changed his clothes, he went and worshiped, and then he ate. David moved on. David went to a new day. And earlier they were puzzled by his prayer and his fasting and his, his mourning. Now they're puzzled by the fact that he's moved on. You know, their response there as they're watching him is like, what is this thing you've done? You, you were mourning before when he's alive. Now he's dead and you're not mourning. Help me understand what, what it is that's going on. And see what David's saying, or what they're saying is God didn't answer your prayers for your son. God said, no, it seems like you should be more upset now. And yet you stopped and you went to go worship. How is it that your faith led you to worship in the midst of this awful circumstance and awful day? See, David is gonna show us here something of, of what it looks like to, to enter a new day, what it looks like to turn a page and go to a new season. And there's a reality for us, and, and I wanna be careful because this is more descriptive than prescriptive. And what I mean by that is it's describing what David did. It's not prescribing exactly how we're supposed to handle it. So don't, don't get too into how many days did he do this and exactly what steps did he follow. But there's a principle here that I think is really important for us to understand. See, people, for us, I think we all know people that have, that have gone through grief and they stopped and they refused to move forward. They got stuck. They didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't understand why God allowed something to happen. And they got stuck and they never knew how to move out of that place of grief and suffering. And so they, they, they just ended up like, a, like an airplane uh, circling an airport with no landing strip. And they just didn't know where to bring the plane down and how to get out of that moment. And so when I think about this, they get stuck oftentimes in suffering. We get stuck in, in what one guy called the land of what ifs and if onlys. Do you know what I mean by the land of what ifs and if onlys? It's, you, you get stuck in this cycle of questions that you're just asking yourself, well, you know, what, what if this never happened? What if I'd made a better choice? What if God had done something different? And so you start asking these questions and you get stuck in this place or maybe there's a different question. You say, well, if only I'd made a better choice. If only we'd had better care. If only someone would have responded differently in that situation. If only God would have shown up in that moment. And we get stuck in that place of questioning and we don't ever move forward to a, be to a better, healthy place. And the problem with what ifs and if onlys is they keep us from ever truly entering grief. And so we get stuck and we never really move through our grief to find a new day. Friends, the reality with suffering and grief is you can't go around it. You can't skip it. You actually have to go through it. And when we, when we stay in the land of what ifs and if onlys and questioning and fear and despair, we end up circling grief and we end up making it a constant part of our life. We don't ever go through to find a new day. And yet David shows us some of what it looks like to try to move through to a new day. Um, you ever know anyone that treats suffering like kind of like Linus does his blanket in Charlie Brown? Like, you know, I mean, the thing with Linus, and, and it is Linus, right? That has the blanket. Have I got the right guy? Yeah, so Linus has got this, this comfort blanket, and he should have shed it years ago, right? Like, he's outgrown the blanket stage, but he's still got this blanket he keeps for comfort. And some of us carry around our suffering like a blanket that we think is going to comfort us way past the time when we should let it go. And so for us, as we think about that, um, you can't change what has happened, but I think we, and we may never understand exactly why things happen to us the way they do. 
but we have to move through them and enter into a new day. We have to, at some point, turn the page. We have to start a new chapter. First Thessalonians 4.13 says, let us not grieve as those who have no hope. You notice that despair and fear are different than grief. Despair and fear are grieving without hope. It is where, what happens if we grieve without hope? Uh, but, but the scriptures actually command us to grieve. I, I, the longer I've lived, the more important I've realized it is for us to name the thing that we're going through, to actually just call it out and put a label on it and say, I'm suffering right now. This is what's happening to me. And in that naming it, we can actually enter into the grief process. So we can enter into the suffering, but in doing so, that allows us to then move beyond it and go through it to something else. And that's what I think David is having to do here. David threw himself fully into the grief and to the point that the people that were watching got a little un unsure. Like, this feels a little out of control, David. Shouldn't you eat? Shouldn't you do something? And it felt a little unsure, but David was fully into grief. But then there was a day where because of that, David was also able to say, I'm gonna turn a corner and I'm gonna move on. And sometimes the best we can do, friends, is to throw ourselves into the grief and call it for what it is. But then on the other side, to do what David did. Rise, take a shower, change your clothes, go to worship, and then eat something and nourish yourself for the next day. That's sometimes what we have, the best we can do. And I think when we see that, uh, there, there's a reality for us that as we think about, um, and, and this, this may sound too blunt for those of us that are right in the middle of a grief right now, but let me just say this. This process is not clean and easy. It's a messy process. Uh, I, I appreciate the simplicity of David's story, but I know that in real life, it oftentimes gets messy. But let me say that uh, as we think about facing our suffering, we have to hold two ends of God's goodness together. And I've got a graphic back here I wanna show you. Uh, any of you ever wanna be a tightrope walker? I've never wanted to do that. That looked horrifying to me from, from the very get-go. Every time I see it, I'm like, that dude is not okay, right? But here's the thing with tightrope walkers. The reason they got that pole is that pole weights things on either end. And the reality for them is when a, when a tightrope walker's walking across a rope and you've got this, this long pole, it brings weight to the end and presses them down upon the deal and it brings ultimately stability and balance to their ability to walk. And what happens, if you imagine if, that's, if they were to take that and push it in one direction or the other, they would get out of balance, right? So friends, as we walk through suffering, there's two tensions that we have to hold and two kind of ends of God's goodness that we have to hold in tension and we can't let either one of them go. The first is God is near to the brokenhearted. Scripture tells us God is, God is close. And friends, if you're suffering, can I just tell you, the Lord sees your pain. He sees what you're walking through. It says in 2 Timothy that the Lord is by your side to strengthen you for the day and to carry you through. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's, he's, he's immediately present with you. And you need to know that and you need to hold on to that truth. That's one end of the, of the bar. You know what the other end of the bar is? He works all things together for good. God is big enough. He's sovereign. He's strong. He's transcendently present in a way that, can, that, that is going to take all the things of history and he's going to work them together to bring about good. And somehow we have to hold both those tensions together. And if you get too far off in either end, you get out of balance. And as you walk through suffering, you need to know, man, God sees you, he's with you, he's present. God's also sovereign and powerful and strong and he's gonna work it out in the end. And we have to hold both those things and together, what that does as we walk through suffering is that gives us balance 
and that gives us stability, like a tightrope walker that's walking across a rope. So friends, we can't forget either, either end of God's love because both those are critical to us so that we keep our balance in life. Let me show you one last item in David's life before we move on. The next verse, uh, in verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And she call, he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So David um, recognizes that he's got to go on to a new day. He doesn't get stuck in his suffering. Eventually, he's got to get up and he's got to go care for his family. He's got to care for his wife. So it says that he takes what he knows and he goes in and he comforts his wife. And let me just say this for some of you men, because sometimes we're just clueless. It, it says he comforted his wife and he went in and lay with her. That probably wasn't the same day. Like, this is not a compressed thing. Like, you know, that, that eventually happened and she, he gave her another child, but don't try to comfort your wife by thinking I'm gonna go in and like, we're gonna have a little fun, right? Maybe not gonna work out very well for you. Uh, so step back, like, go in and comfort. And then eventually what he's saying is they restored a relationship and they were able to continue and move forward. And so in that, um, you know, it says that she gave, or he gave birth, she gave birth to a son and David called his name Solomon. It means Shalom. Peace. Isn't it amazing that out of everything they'd been through together, that the child, the fruit of that event, he's gonna name peace. God had brought peace to that moment. And then Nathan shows up again. Chase did a great job last week of showing us how we all need, we all need Christian friends. We all need spiritual friends who will say the hard thing to us when we do. And Nathan had to go in and confront David whenever David had committed adultery and murder and all the things that he'd done. Here, David, uh, Nathan gets to do a wonderful thing and he gets to go in and says, David, the Lord loves your son. And I want you, the Lord wants you to call him Jedidiah. You know what Jedidiah means? It means beloved of the Lord. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? To think Nathan that had to confront him in his worst day, now gets to come and just bless him and say, David, the Lord says he loves your son. This one that has come out of this. That's grace, isn't it? Friends, we need, we need friends who will weep with us. We need friends who also rejoice with us. Nathan had to say to David, you are the man. He also gets to say to David, the Lord loves your son. And that's a good thing. Now you may be thinking, Jeff, okay, 2020 is hard enough. Uh, can't we get to angels and joy, joy to the world and let's get to Christmas. What does all this have to do with Christmas? Well, let me show you because this birth of Solomon is going to be important, but also uh, we're gonna pick up kind of where David, uh, where David shows up in the story in the New Testament. Let me say this, we're in the second week of Advent. And Advent means arrival, and it speaks to the arrival of Jesus into the world, of a Messiah, of a Savior who's come. And in that, what, what do we speak of when we talk about Advent is there's a sense of, of longing, of waiting, of wanting, of aching, of yearning, of desiring a new day, desiring the new thing that God would do, more of God's goodness in the world. And it's a reminder of our need for a Savior who will rescue and restore and so friends, as we get in, as we kind of enter the Christmas season, can I just give you three truths that you need to remember that I think we see from uh, the coming of Christ? And, and we see it from this story. In your suffering, Christmas is a reminder that you do not know the end of your story. See, do you think David, when he's lying face down on the ground, weeping over that child, do you think he saw the end of his story and knew what would come? I don't think he did. He didn't yet know the end of the story. Christmas is a reminder that you don't know the end of the story. You do not know, you do not yet know 
how grace may change you. You don't know what God's gonna do in your life as you move forward. And you do not yet know what joy may come. Can I show you how I know this is true? Let's go to Matthew chapter one. And we're gonna pan out and do kind of a wide angle lens here and look at uh, something that will lead us to Christmas, believe it or not. Verse one, says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's kind of a weird way to start a book, right? Uh, like, there aren't many bestsellers in our day that start off with a family tree. It's just, it just doesn't seem very exciting to us. But let me tell you why this is here. Matthew's written for a Jewish audience and he's writing in a way that says, Jesus has the right to be the king over Israel and over all of God's people. And so he's building his argument for them to understand that Jesus Christ is the one that was prophesied, the one that will fill the, fulfill the promises of God, who's the rightful king of Israel. And so you see that the, he mentions right up front the two great covenants in Israel's history. He mentions uh, Abraham and he mentions David. Abraham was the promise of a people that God gave, saying you will, you will bear fruit the, and, and you will have a people and bless the nations and your, your descendants will be more than the stars. You'll outnumber uh, the sands of the earth. And so you see the promise of a people in Abraham. In David, you see the promise of a kingdom that would last forever. And what Matthew's going to say is that, that the fulfillment of those prof, promises takes place in the arrival of Jesus Christ. Son of Abraham was a promise of a nation. Son of David was the pinnacle of a nation. And before we look at some of the names, and we're not gonna try to walk through all this, but I want you to jump down to verse 17. I wanna point out one thing to you here. It says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to, until Christ, 14 generations. Now, as you think through that, it seems a little bit confusing. There's three different sections. And as you look through the genealogy, there's three sections that are on display there. And there's kind of the sense of uh, Abraham to David's when things were going up and looking really good. And then they go to deportation to Babylon and that's when they've sinned and gone and things have gotten really, really bad. And then there's this waiting time from Babylon where things just, they wallow in the pit until Jesus Christ shows up. And you have these three different sections that are there. And oftentimes in that day, in Jewish genealogies, they would come up with some kind of a scheme to try to help make, this, make things memorable. And so that's what you have here. There's not really 14 generations in each of those, but he lists 14 names. And the reason uh, why some scholars think he picked 14 was if you take David's name in Hebrew and do the numerology, it's the number 14. So some people think he's just trying to give a neon light going, all of this is about David. All of this in this chapter is pointing us to David and not just to David, but to a son of David who was to arrive at this moment in history named Jesus Christ. And so that's the, the reason why that's there. But if you go and try to look through your Old Testament and count all the names there and look at them here, they don't line up. And it's not because they were lying or confused. It was because just the way in which they wrote things, they tried to create these memorable schemes and that's what's there. So let's begin, and uh, here's what, here's what I, I think it's important for us to, to see. When, you, when we left David, he was, uh, or when we were looking back at David, um, he'd gone through this traumatic event, right? Adultery, murder, death of a child, birth of a new child. There was a sense of just the messiness of his life. And it's hard for, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that David at that point ever could have imagined that, that centuries later, the most read book in human history would begin talking about his lineage and painting a picture of his lineage that would point to a savior of the world that was to come. And yet it does. And in this, I think, 
Um, it just makes me think of God's grace, that God would take David and he would do this kind of a thing out of David's mess. So let's look at uh, some of these stories. Verse two, it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So let's look at, think through some of our, our history. If you know your Old Testament, uh, Abraham, uh, what was Abraham's story? Was Abraham's story always easy? No, Abraham's story was a mess. Abraham lied sometimes about his wife, said this is my sister. Abraham and Sarah wanted a baby. They didn't get one for years and years and years. Uh, they, God promised them they'd have a child. They didn't believe him. They tried all sorts of crooked, messed up ways to work around that and produce their own child and continue to bring harm and hurt to their family and to their life. And then eventually God gives them a child and the child's name is what? Abraham, the father of Isaac. Anyone know what Isaac means? Laughter happy, right? So literally what this says is Abraham was the father of laughter. And is that not grace? That at the end of all the suffering, at the end of all the years of waiting, at the end of decades of longing for a child, God gave him one. And you look back and years later, we look back and go, hey, Abraham fathered laughter. Oh, Isaac fathers uh, Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. It's interesting. It mentions his brothers, right? Because this is a lineage that's supposed to trace down individuals. Why do you think it mentions his brothers? I think it's because he wants to remind us of the grace of the story. If you think about Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. Um, like that could be trauma all by itself, right? In one regard, I mean, uh, to me, I think about that. That feels traumatic just from the get-go. But then you take into account the fact that 11 of the brothers sold one of the brother into slavery and left him for dead. And Jacob went years thinking that his son had died and didn't know where he was. Think of the pain and suffering of that. Of, having, of knowing that your, your children sold their sibling into slavery, left him for dead in the morning in grief and unresolved tension that would create for his life. And yet God in his grace brought back around because he, there was a famine that came and that family uh, didn't have enough to eat and they had to go to a foreign country and beg for food. And lo and behold, that son who had been lost was found and he was there and he provided food for them and he cared for them. And in that, what was it that, uh, what was it that Joseph was able to say after they reunited after all those years? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Friend, that's, that's grace. The evil that they wrought and the mess they brought to their family, God still brought grace to them. Friends, you don't yet know the end of your story. You don't know what grace may do in your life. Um, it's all, grace is scattered all throughout this text. I want us to look at four women, and we're not going to go much past these four ladies, but uh, there's a fascinating element here of four outcasts that are brought into this story. And if you know anything about Jewish genealogies, and you probably don't because why would you, uh, women didn't show up in genealogies. These were, these were the territory of men. It showed the, the line that happened for a family tree that went from one male to another to another. And yet Matthew here in this genealogy of Christ includes four women. And the four that he chooses to, to include are four outcasts that were chosen by grace to be a part of Jesus' family. And it's really a wonderful little scene that we see here. But, but of these four women in the genealogy, three of them were foreigners who, um, in, in a theocracy that was focused on a single nation. And so they were Gentiles, they were outcasts and not allowed to participate and worship fully with God's people. And so, uh, and God's people had laws that said they were not to intermingle sexually with other nations or intermarry. Three of the four were involved in gross sexual sin, tainted and shamed by their action and by the things that they had done. I mean, yet these are the ones chosen to be included here. Is that not grace? Well, look with me at verse three. 
Verse three says in Judah, so one of the sons of Jacob, uh, one of the ones who sold his brother Joseph off into slavery, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Um, and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. And we're not stopped there. So the first lady that you see is, is Tamar. Um, why do you think it includes her here? And you know, she, she's the father of twins. And I think the reason why it mentions both twins, because only one of them is the one that the line goes through. But I think it mentions both of them because it's wanting to remind you of how it is they came into the world. See, Tamar was a, was a, um, a Canaanite daughter-in-law of Judah. And as this one who was, a, who was married to one of Judah's sons, uh, everything for, uh, in that culture was about producing offspring, producing a lineage, producing a family. And, and so he had married, uh, she had married one of his sons named Er. And Er was a wicked man. And in fact, it says that God, uh, that God took Er's life. And because of that, and according to the law of the Jews, that if a man died, then his brother, the next in line, was to marry that woman so that she could be provided for and cared for. And he was to, he was to have a child through her so that she was not cut off from the family. And so Judah goes and gives son number two to Tamar. And sure enough, that son was also wicked and God also took his life. So then Judah gets a little bit spooked, right? It's like, dude, I've let two of my sons marry this woman and they both died. I've got a third son and he's a little bit younger. And he, so he just kind of backs off and goes, he tells her, I'll give my third son to you when he's just a little bit older. But then he holds him back and refuses to do so. He doesn't follow through on his promise. He doesn't fulfill the, prior, the, the commands that God's law had given for that circumstance. And, you know, it's funny how, you know, he, he's kind of approaching this like, maybe this woman's just bad luck. And I don't think I'm gonna give my third son to her. And it's amazing how often it is we can try to find something else to blame rather than dealing with our sin. The, the problem in this scenario was that he had two evil sons. And that's ultimately what led to this problem. So eventually he refuses to give the third son to Tamar and Tamar tricks him. And she goes and hears that he's going, to, he's going to town and she goes and dresses herself up as a prostitute and veils her face. And uh, she plays the role of a whore. And Judah goes in and offers to pay her and they sleep together. And then she waits and she gets pregnant and she sends word to Judah, I'm pregnant. And um, it's now her father-in-law. And so what you have are she, the, these twins, Perez and Zerah, are the product of Tamar and her father-in-law's um, relationship that was in a fake relationship of prostitution. And think about the story of that being in Jesus' line. Lies, trickery, prostitution, incest. And yet that's who God chooses to use. That's grace. And she's included here in Jesus' line. Verse five, he says, now Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. We're gonna look next at Rahab and Ruth. Rahab um, was another prostitute. This one was in Joshua 2. If you look at Joshua 2, you may remember that Joshua was going into land and there was a city called Jericho and they were gonna walk around the city and the walls of Jericho were gonna what? They were all gonna fall down. And so as they're going in to scout it out, there's some of the Israelite spies are looking in and uh, they get the, they're found out and the, Jer the people of Jericho are sending to go find these spies and they're gonna kill them. And Rahab, it says, brings them into her house. She hides them, puts them on the roof. And then she devises a plan for their escape and she helps them get out and, and they're able to escape. And they tell her, because of what you've done, we will spare you. Um, because you've cared for us. And it says that she feared the Lord. And, uh, and so they gave her a test and said, if you, if you truly do, then you drop a scarlet thread out the window. And whenever we come back to get you, we will spare you and all of your family that you can bring into your house. And through the, the, the sign of faith of that scarlet 
uh, of that scarlet thread will save you. And so this foreign prostitute, this Jerichoite who is an enemy and a, and, a, and a prostitute becomes into the people of Israel and says, from that day on, she lived amongst the people of Israel. She converted and became one of them. Friends, that's grace. And she's included here in Jesus' line. Now, Ruth, um, in the same verse, you see that it mentions Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. And she, was a, she was a godly woman, a woman had, who had converted as a Moabitess. But do you know anything about the Moabites? The Moabites were a people that had resulted from um, a man named Lot. And Lot had lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. You may remember some of that story. And his, he, he had feared the evil of that people. And so he had not allowed his daughters to marry. And his daughters, because they were desperate to continue the line and to have some kind of a future, once he was gone, um, they actually got their father drunk and they slept with him. And these were the, uh, the Moabites were the people that resulted from that, from that awful account. And what it is we're understanding that is, the, is the, the depth and the darkness of the Moabites. And because of that, you see things like Deuteronomy 23.3, which says, no Ammonite or Moabite may ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So the Israelites were cut off from the people of Moabites. Ruth's a Moabite. And she's a godly Moabite who had converted to Israel. And she's gonna show up here. Um, her, she is actually also a widow. Her first husband had died and she goes back to Israel with her mother-in-law and remarries and event, or eventually marries again. So she's a Gentile, an enemy of Israel, a forbidden marriage, a widow with no place to turn, an outcast of the nation. And she's in Jesus' line. That's grace. Don't you love the picture of these four and why um, Matthew's included them all? Let's look at this last one here in verse six. It says, and Jesse, the father of David, the son of the king, the David and David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So the last one that you see here as you come back to David is uh, the wife of Uriah. You notice it doesn't call her Bathsheba. It's calling her the wife of Uriah because it's reminding us of the mess of David's life. That David uh, committed murder of Uriah and that's included here in, in the genealogy and he wants us to understand that. And just like in 2 Samuel 11, it heightens the, the offensiveness of what we're to feel. We're to feel the weight of, this is a child that came by adultery, by murder, and yet God blessed this and brought about good from it. Um, she became, um, as we think about this, we think of the name Solomon that in the name peace and, with, and the name that he was given later that he was loved by the Lord, Jedediah. And you think of what, how God brought good out of something bad in the middle of that, that scenario, that's grace. So we've kind of come full circle, gone from David, we're back to David and Solomon. And have you seen how God has used the mess of David's life from 2 Samuel? to bring about something good. And they're included here in the lineage of Jesus. But let me ask you this. Um, had the promise of God that his people would always be beloved and that there would be a ruler on the, on the throne of David that would last forever, has that been fulfilled through these guys? No, they failed, which is why the next, in the next lines, they go off to de they're deported off to exile, right? Because these men could not fulfill the promises of God. There had to be another son of David that would come that would be able to do that. Psalm 89 tells us that promise. It says, my steadfast love I will keep for David forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. Question, if David's descendants remained on the throne? No. Um, has this promise been fulfilled? Well, not yet, right? 
There must still be something to come. We still need a son of David who is righteous and good and who's worthy to reign forever. So friends, do you see why this list is here? Do you see why Matthew begins with a genealogy? Because it's wanting us to see that there is a son of David who must come. And it's not just a list of names, but it's a testimony of God's grace and a mess, God's grace and a messy family tree. God's grace continually was at work through all the messes of their lives in order to bring about his purposes and his plans and the fulfillment of his promises, even in the midst of their mess. And there was a son of David who was coming to save the world. And you notice if you get a little further in the chapter, there's a fifth woman in this chapter. Going down to verses 18 to 25, you see another woman named Mary that shows up in this section. And she's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. In verse 16, it says, now the birth of Jesus, or verse 16, it, uh, we get to the end in the last name of that genealogy. And it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Now, this is where the genealogy points and everything in this points to Jesus. See, Joseph was from the line of David and he was Jesus' legal father, even though he wasn't his biological father. And it shows that his, uh, he was from the right line. In fact, in uh, verse 20 and 21, we see that an angel makes sure that we understand this. It says, as Joseph was considering these things and what Joseph was thinking about was, I'm engaged to this woman. I've never been in bed with this woman, but she's now pregnant. What is it I'm to do? And he's wrestling with, is that a messy situation? He's, he's wrestling with a messy situation, trying to figure it out, what, how is it that I'm to respond in the midst of this? And an angel shows up and says, as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, that's where all of this pointed. Christ has come to save his people from their sins. Now, if you think about uh, this, this the, the messy world that Jesus was entering, Jesus was, was entering a messy family situation, was he not? Um, Mary's pregnant. She's never slept with Joseph. She's a, a pregnant virgin. Uh, imagine explaining that to your fiance. Like, how's that gonna go? Imagine trying to explain that to your parents. Like, you're gonna go home and go, well, here's the deal. I got a story for you. That's, that's a messy situation to try to explain and to try to make sense of. And this is a messy beginning for a family. There's, there's no sonogram pics. There's no gender reveal party. Uh, there, there's no, uh, there, there's no showers or parties or registering for gifts. There's no time for premarital counseling. There's no rehearsal dinner or wedding. Uh, there's no reception. There's no DJ. There's no bad dancing with, uh, with, with you know, your relatives. Jesus literally enters a messy family in a messy family tree, in a messy time in human history. And he steps into the mess for us in order to bring about rescue and restoration. Listen to what Dorothy Sayers says about this. It says, the incarnation means that for whatever reason God chose to let us fall into the condition of being limited, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He himself has gone through the whole human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born into poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. 
So friends, what do we do with all this? What do we, how do we make sense of this for us? If the reality is some of us have had a, we, we had to go to school and we got a degree in suffering we didn't want. Uh, some of us got advanced degrees in suffering and grief and we didn't really want it. Um, but in this world, the reality for us is that none of us get a pass. Um, when you think about Jesus' family tree, let me ask you this. Does it look kind of like your family tree? Is it full of broken lives? Is it full of lost loved ones who died before you were ready? Is it full of broken relationships, hurt, hardship, sin and shame? People who have bad habits and hangups that they don't, can't seem to beat? Is it full of um, sorrow and crazy aunts and uncles? Maybe you're the crazy aunt or uncle, right? When you think about your family tree, I just think, man, my, my family tree looks a lot like Jesus' family tree. And what, what Christmas tells us is in the incarnation, Jesus entered into the crazy. He entered into the crazy for us. Uh, think about that wise and profound work of art, Talladega Nights. Um, I don't even forget who it is, Cal Naughton, and one of those guys is talking to Ricky Bobby, and they're just saying, I just remember, he goes, Ricky, don't you put that evil on me. And what he's saying is, it's not fair. You have to handle your own stuff. I can't carry your weight. But the incarnation is Jesus coming to us saying, you can put that crazy on me. You can put that evil on me. I'll, I'll, I'm willing to take all of that. I'm, I'm willing to enter into your world and I'm, in, I'm willing to carry the weight that you've got. So whatever that shame and that anger and that frustration and that despair and all those things that are in here, Jesus says, you can take that and you can put that on me. And I will enter your world and I will carry the weight for you so that that burden can be lifted from you and you'll have new you'll have a new day. Friends, we need to know that, that we don't know the end of the story yet. God's still writing your story and Christmas tells you, you don't yet know the end. You don't yet know the grace that he may give you. You don't yet know the joy that may come. And so because of that, let's, I wanna end with a prophecy from 700 years before Jesus. Two prophecies from, from Isaiah. One tells you what to do with today and what tells you what to do for tomorrow. First, we see that Jesus will steady you today. Isaiah 26, three says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Friends, fix your mind on Jesus and he will give you peace today. And so he, he will steady you today. He will also deliver you tomorrow. Isaiah goes on to write, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field will clap their hands in joy. Friends, there's a day coming where all will be made new. So let's wait for that day. Let's fix our eyes on him today and let's look for the day when he comes back and makes all things right. Let me pray for us. Father, we, we know that there are many who are suffering many in our congregation, many in our city, many in our world, and yet you have not left us in our suffering, but you sent your son to enter into suffering with us. That he has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That he, is, uh, that he has wept over the loss of loved ones. That he has uh, suffered incredible pain and isolation. That he has cried out to you as we cry out to you. And Father, we ache for a new day. We ache for more of the peace that you, that you sent Jesus to bring. Father, we long for the day when, um, when that joy will burst forth and nothing will hold it back. And until that day, Father, help us to fix our eyes upon you, that we would trust you and that you would give us peace day by day, moment by moment. 
until that day where we see you and have no doubts. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.